just in seeing what's going on and seeing how a lot of people have different understandings of who, who Jesus is. The premise of this series, especially as we, we move into a time where we're really trying to focus on Jesus, obviously we should want to do that year-round, but these two upcoming holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and even the New Year, we might even add to this, they really create a hyper-concentrated time where spirituality is on the mind and the hearts of a lot of people. And I pray that at the top of the list of that people are, are us, are God's people. And so throughout the course of history, kind of share a bit of an opening analogy, um, throughout the course of our country's brief, but I think rather amazing history if you compare it to uh, global nations, um, the American, North American continent, us in particular, we've gotten a lot done over the past roughly 300 years. And one of the things that I think is interesting about some of our history is if you look at some of the things that people have said, if you look at key figures in, our, in our, the culture of our history. And so there's this trajectory, I think, where we see uh, people who who said something. They did something great or maybe even said something or the combination of two. And what happened was uh, their identity became synonymous with, with that, whatever they said or whoever they self-identified them as. Their brief but profound claims defined who they were, and people, uh, for good or bad, remembered them because of it. I'll give you a great example of this. My, this is my absolute favorite regarding our history, is the Continental Army's Connecticut-born Nathan Hale, who, uh, during the American Revolution, volunteered to covertly gather intelligence from the British in my home city of New York. And after some time, a very fruitful uh, effort he had had, but after some time, he was captured by the British, and sentenced to hang for treason. And just before hanging, he was given this chance to utter these, these, some last words that was pretty common in those days. And in that moment, he said something that defined uh, heroism and patriotism in our country for a very, very long time to this day. He said, I only regret that I have but one life to give uh, for my country. Those are some good words to go out on. And those iconic words earned him, earned him a place in history that made his name synonymous with heroism and patriotism. So that's kind of a favorable side of what we're about to talk about. Think about this from the other side of the fence, though. Those of you that were around during uh, President Nixon's administration, you might remember a presidential address where he adamantly declared that he was not a crook to the nation, but then shortly after was implicated in the Watergate scandal. And so that, that claim really defined his presidency, and I think it's pretty fair to say, for a lot of people, him as a person. So you have this idea of who somebody says they are, or in this case they are not, and then what they actually are, and there is a synonymous identity now grafted into this person's self-declaration of who they are. So over these next weeks, this is kind of what we're going to, this isn't kind of what we're going to be talking about, it is what we're going to be talking about. How this, this name identity principle is, is really the big rock in our jaw, and we're, we're going to try to apply it to Jesus, because Jesus, in a lot of places, particularly in John 10, where we're at, he talks about who he is. When people are saying, who are you, he starts telling them, oh, who, who, this is who I am. So here's why I think this is important to do this right now. We're in an interesting season culturally again. I mean, culture, you know, shifts and morphs, but it's been interesting watching the growing number of people, and I would say this relatively confidently, both Christian and non-Christian alike, who have gotten very comfortable making statements about who Jesus is and what he said and what he's done that often disagree with who Jesus is and what he actually said. There's an incongruency here between the Jesus of Scripture and the Jesus that some people are purporting to follow. And so, Answering this question, who is Jesus, this is, you know, a, a big thing we'll deal with. We're going to look at other things, some of the benefits that he gives us, his peace and uh, his word. These are this is kind of where we're going. But generally answering the question, who is Jesus, it is a very big question. And we can answer it in part over the next few weeks, but we can't answer it in its entirety. But I do think we get a really substantive teaching from John chapter 10. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture where Jesus himself, in, in part, but in a very full part, he's dealing with a group of people who, who are trying to figure out who he is. 
and he's answering them. He's beginning to let, him, let them know, hey, you want to know who I am. God sent me here to let the world know who I am. And so Jesus, being a master teacher, which we know that he is, he answers their question not necessarily by giving them the, uh, like a, an account of his Christology. He doesn't explain the Trinity at this point. He gives them these pretty amazing, they're parabolic metaphors, okay? And in case you don't know what a parable is, a parable is a, it's a story, a metaphorical story, that is used to reveal a specific truth about God and his kingdom. So Jesus is saying like, you know, hey, the kingdom of God is like this, like a mustard seed. Or here he references himself as a good shepherd. We know literally Jesus was not a shepherd moving sheep, but he's creating this kind of spiritual parallel for us. So parables are very common in scripture and they're usually given to us to explain very important truths about the kingdom. And right here in this, this climate where people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, in our climate today, where a lot of people think they know who he is, but, but then you try to say, well, Jesus actually said this about himself, and what you're saying doesn't, doesn't really make any sense. In this particular parable, Jesus identifies himself as, as our good shepherd, a super common motif in both Testaments, old and new. And the response of his audience, much like our culture today, clearly shows us that at first, and this is probably where everybody starts, if we're going to be honest, everyone misunderstands the meaning of what he's saying. That, you know, he says, uh, I'm the good shepherd, and then at some point, we'll t- touch on this in a minute, he says, the, the Pharisees, you know, John Selling, are still not getting it. You know, they're hearing this, but they're not understanding. The, the analogy is clear, but they can't make the connection to why Jesus is actually who he says he is. I think one of the real reasons this happens, both in the ancient world and in our modern world, is because a lot of people already have made up their mind about who they think Jesus is supposed to be. And so, you know, the Pharisees in this case are coming to Jesus with a grid. In our culture, they're coming to Jesus saying, uh, I believe Jesus is this, and what happens is that voice becomes more important in their lives than, than Jesus' voice actually telling the world who he is. And so Jesus being Jesus, a master teacher, and also the great originator of grace, he takes some time in his infinite grace to explain this parable and correct their faulty thinking. He's you know, showing grace by telling them, no, you've got this wrong, let me explain who I really am. And his explanation is really what we're going to be looking at over these next weeks. And so we'll begin by looking at this foundational name that Jesus gives to a group of people asking, who are you? And from his words, we learn that Jesus is the good shepherd, and those who truly follow him are called his sheep. So there are two identities leveled here. One is who Jesus is, and then the second is who we are. And we're going to talk a little bit about this. And we see this very explicitly in John chapter 11. Uh, We just sang about it. There are some other verses we'll see as we move through the talk this morning. But Jesus says pretty confidently, hey, I, I am the good shepherd. And he gives us the, the ultimate aim, the ultimate end of what the good shepherd is going to do is he's going to lay his life down for his sheep. This is a pretty powerful statement. And it really it captures, I think, it should anyways, capture the heart, our hearts regarding who Jesus really is. And so to understand the significance of this statement, unless some of you in here are sheep herders by trade, I don't know of anybody that is doing that. It's important that we take some time to understand what the metaphor is talking about. It's important that we take some time to look at the practice of of shepherding, particularly in Jesus's day, because it's a very different way that they shepherd. You know, when we think of herding sheep, uh, it's very likely, I know in my mind, I immediately think about the culture I grew up in. I think about herding cattle or herding sheep the kind of American way. And in my mind, a state like Texas comes to mind, where you have these kind of rough-riding cowboy-type figures. Shepherds in the ancient Near Eastern world were, were pretty rough cats. I'm not trying to—that's probably a good comparison there. But, but they, they shepherded very differently. You know, in our world, we think of, of guys on mammoth horses or uh, people cracking whips and driving their herds along the countryside. And they've got dogs running by them, sheepdogs. Obviously, there is a, a, a brand of dog called a sheepdog that is supposed to do this. And they're kind of driving from the rear, corralling these sheep, forcing them to go where they want to go based on their owner's desire, moving them from pen to pen or field to field. And that's pretty much how we do it over here. It's a very kind of from the bottom up, forceful type of shepherding. 
That's how we do it here, but it's not how shepherding takes place in the ancient world, took place in the ancient world, and it's certainly not how it takes place in, in the modern ancient world, because remember, most of these territories we, we, we read about in the scripture still exist today. And so unlike Western shepherds who drive their sheep, like uh, with dogs or horses or whips, shepherds of the ancient world, both uh, in Jesus' day and now, they, they led from the front of the flock, very different. And they didn't do it necessarily by force. I mean, I'm sure there were times they had a corral and used a crook to move the, the herd. But the bottom line is they did not drive from behind. They, they called from the front. And as a result, in that, in that culture, what sheep learned to do was not be barked at. They learned to recognize the voice of the one leading them through the wilderness. And so a quick side note here, since this is the year we've really been emphasizing the importance of discipleship and disciple making. We've talked about, you know, we just celebrated our five-year anniversary and the next five years for us, although there are some particular logistics connected to this, really we're throwing our anchor, dropping everything we have in this idea of being faithful disciples of Jesus and making faithful disciples of Jesus, trying to be active in moving God's kingdom forward. And so I want to say here that it's, it's very obvious, or it should be, why God regularly uses this metaphor, sheep shepherd, the shepherd, to describe the disciple-making relationship between Jesus and us. Think about this. Just like in sheep shepherding, as followers of Jesus, God desires that we learn to listen to the voice of his son wherever he leads us. This is the analogy that he's giving us here. This truly is the heart of the Christian faith. We recognize the grace and the love of Jesus. We are captivated by that. We then you know, receive that love and grace, um, and then we spend the rest of our lives giving our lives back to Jesus, following him, Lord willing, more faithfully as the years go on. It's the heart of the Christian faith. But it's also a bit of a two-sided coin when you begin to look at Jesus' analogy here. Because on one side of the coin, the kind of love that Jesus has for us as a shepherd, let's look at that identity for a minute, it, it says some pretty beautiful and powerful things if you understand shepherding in the ancient world. Jesus is not like a guy on a, on a, on a horse cracking a whip to move his kingdom forward behind us. That's not the way he rolls, although he can, and I'm sure there have been times in history when he's done it. But the, the primary way Jesus works as the good shepherd is very different what we see is that the good shepherd is willing to go before us. The good shepherd is willing to keep us safe. Even if you think about the movement of the kingdom in the early church, the Holy Spirit is essentially working, and God's people are on his coattails moving the kingdom forward. God is always before us. He, he's willing to keep us safe, right? One of the great jobs of, the, of, of our shepherd. He guides us. He protects us. And as he says in John, he's even willing to lay his life down for us. The, the shepherd throws himself in between the sheep and the wolf when it gets to that point. So all of that gives us this beautiful sense of, of who Jesus is and, and God's care for us, right? That, that we, we see we are loved by the good shepherd. That's one side of the coin. Um, but I want to talk about the other side of the coin for a minute. Because with all that said, the other side of the coin is not as gracious or as beautiful. It actually can be slightly offensive because in the context of this relationship, you and I are the sheep, right? That's essentially what we're reading here. Now, this has the high potential to rub you the wrong way, so draw your judgment on what I'm about to say at the end of this, not in the middle of this. This is especially going to be true if you've seen sheep act. Like, I don't know if you spend a lot of time on YouTube watching sheep. If you do, you need friends. But if not, this is going to make a lot of sense to you, okay? Sheep are not exactly known for their extreme intelligence. You are never going to see on US-1 a Volusia County cruiser roll up and a sheep jump out the back with a deputy. It doesn't work that way. There's some kind of a canine, some intelligent breed of animal that is used to get that job done. Sheep are not known for doing anything exceptional in the world. They taste good and they create coats for us, but apart from that, there's not really a whole lot, right? So sheep are, they're easily distracted. You think about the nature of a sheep. They're prone to wander. 
They are easily preyed upon by wolves. Jesus actually uses this analogy here. Uh, Savage animals really have the advantage over them. They will eat things that hurt them. They get lost very easily. Unlike other animals, they they are dependent on the herd. They they will die without it. Um, and, And in this case, not just the herd mentality. They really do need somebody guiding the herd. The herd will aimlessly wander without somebody either driving from the rear or, in our case, leading from the front. So what this means is the herd mentality means they're easily, easily led astray, and they actually even struggle with their identity at times. And killer uh, video, very true video, uh, years ago I watched a video of a sheep that had been separated from its shepherd and flock. It had strayed away from a group of, of, of its people, you know, its kind, and it had stumbled into, uh, a, I don't know if deer herd, but it was a group of herd, whatever the, a group of deer, whatever that is called. I don't hunt much. But uh, they, the sheep had gotten around the deer, and the deer at first were kind of a little, you know, taken back. And, but nonetheless, they began doing their thing. And the deer were kind of in the middle of, like, you know, frolicking and running around and almost looked like they were playful. Some of them were jumping. You know, deer can leap amazingly. It was, they were just really having a grand old time. And the sheep was up in the mix, not exactly knowing what to do. And so what it actually began to do was it started acting like a deer. It started running back and forth, and it attempted to jump far less majestically than the deer were doing. And it did this, I don't know, 10 or 15 times before the deer got so freaked out by at least, at least in my human mind, I'm thinking the big white fake deer mimicking them running, you know, jumping around, uh, the, the, the white sheep anyways. There was a real problem there. And so the deer eventually just recognized this thing is not one of us. So I'm not sure what it's doing, having a seizure or something. And then they just ran off into the woods. Now, it was uh, sort of a sad thing to see. It was funny, but it was also sad because at the end of the video, what you essentially had was a sheep all, all alone. It was, for some reason, left its flock it had strayed, and in this case, using Jesus' analogy, followed the wrong crowd. It was pursuing a path that at this point was very much life-threatening, alone in the wilderness. And here you have the sheep all by itself. Now, I want to be honest for a minute. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that, that we almost have to admit that people can be the same way at times. And I'm going to kind of confidently say that because this is kind of what Jesus is saying here. People are well-known, not always or all the time, But people are well-known, and we probably all have stories like this in our lives where we followed the wrong shepherd or we pursued the wrong crowd or whatever else it may be. At times, a sheep's behavior looks a lot like, like people, like the way we behave. And there's something notable about that. So this is why, it's because of this reason, this sheep people reality, that God describes himself as a good shepherd who deeply cares for his flock. And I want to read to you, we just sang this, but I want to read to you Psalm 23. Take, for example, how how the psalmist describes this relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. The analogy between God and us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You know, we read this a lot at gravesides when we're burying people, and, which is an amazing thing. But keep in mind, this is also a passage meant to bring us an abundant life. This isn't just for those who have passed on to be with Jesus. This is also for those still alive living in him. Think of these verses from this angle. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, no matter how rough your Monday is, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You ride on your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a pretty famous teaching, a powerful teaching. And in it, we see that the good shepherd is responsible for a lot of things, supplying the needs of his flock. He leads us to food and rest here, provision. He disciplines us when necessary. 
He guides and directs the daily affairs of our lives. He's obliged to comfort and protect the flock from the dangers of the wilderness, from life that seek to harm us and maybe even kill us, whether that is literally or spiritually. In Scripture, the good shepherd spares no expense when it comes to how he loves and pours out his goodness on his sheep. That's the role of the good shepherd. And the kind of ambiguous nature of the good shepherd in the Old Testament gets very unambiguous in the New Testament. The greatest evidence we have of how God is our good shepherd can be seen in how Jesus, in examining how Jesus cares for us. We're no longer talking about the good shepherd in general. Now we actually have the good shepherd on earth who lives and shows us just how much he leads from the front and loves us. So in Christianity, think about this. Jesus loves his sheep so much that he puts himself in between us and the sin that seeks to destroy our lives. This is the whole point of the cross, right? The good shepherd gets in between us and the ultimate wolf. His unmerited love for us shows us the true meaning of God's grace. And what's amazing about grace is that it is given to us as people who are more prone to stray than we are to follow. Yet Jesus still says, I'm going to die for you, knowing this fully. He still chooses to love and lead us. So much so, we have other passages of Scripture. Luke is probably the best, you know, the 99 and the 1, where, where we learn the good shepherd, he drops everything to find and restore the one sheep that strays away. The idea of, of God loving those who are far from him or really pursuing those who don't want to be pursued, whether we're in the kingdom or outside of it, we see the good shepherd is willing to run through the woods to keep us safe and to find us, to continue to call us even at times when we just blatantly reject him. That's grace. Now, I'll admit being called a shepherd, uh, it can be a bit offensive and probably is. If you understand what a, a being, being called a sheep, excuse me, can be a bit offensive. However, when you start to understand the kind of love the shepherd has for you as a sheep, it, it really becomes a much sweeter truth to the spiritual palate. And that's the key here is recognizing that the sheep are the beneficiaries of the shepherd. So I don't think Jesus is trying to insult us here. I think he's trying to really dynamically show us or spotlight the importance of this relationship. Here's the catch, though. Um, much like many of the promises that God gives us here that he'll be our good shepherd, if you want to experience this kind of love, you have, you have to be willing, really volitionally, to, to experience it. You have to get to this place with this promise where you lay down your pride enough and admit to Jesus that you have sheepish qualities, because we all do. You never experience the love of the shepherd if you can't admit that you're a sheep. We have a problem with pride at that point. When you do that, when you get to the point where you say, yeah, Jesus, I am sheepish at times, and sometimes I'm a full-blown sheep, your heart will start to appreciate this good shepherd teaching. Because without a sheep, a sheep without a good shepherd is really destined to stumble through the wilderness of life. Now, I want to qualify what Jesus says here, and then we're going to use it to move into our next point. Notice Jesus doesn't just call himself a shepherd. That's good enough, but he doesn't just say a shepherd. He calls himself our good shepherd. And he does this for a very pointed reason. And this reason leads us to the second truth we're going to talk about today. Hopefully by now there's at least a basic agreement with the fact that um, everyone is prone to follow something in life, good or bad, sometimes both. Because of this, Jesus tells us, if you want to follow the good shepherd, if you want to follow him, you have to be able to identify what a false shepherd is. There's, there's this kind of Back and forth that goes on in this passage. We see it a little bit in Psalm. We'll see it a lot in Ezekiel in a minute, where Jesus is talking about what a good shepherd is and what a good shepherd is not. And having the ability to discern between the two is imperative for your life in Christ. It's smart just to live on this earth, but it's very necessary if you're going to become a Christian or you are a Christian and you're trying to pursue Jesus. John 10, 7 through 8 says this. Jesus used this figure of speech. This is the metaphor. But the Pharisees, they didn't understand what he was telling them. Jesus therefore said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me, this is the false shepherd, 
they are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. And he implies here that the sheep were able to figure out who the good shepherd is and who the guys breaking into the back of the pen trying to mislead them were. And so history teaches us there's no shortage of false shepherds in our world. And I want to give the Pharisees a little credit here. Uh, They weren't entirely all bad. They were predominantly, they missed a point in some serious ways, but I don't think every Pharisee was a a bad person. I think there was maybe even some natural uh, or unhealthy reluctance to believe Jesus's truth claims in this passage, because in their day, much like our day, there were lots of people claiming to be good shepherds to the people who, who just were not. Some were charming, but came with their own agendas. They attempted to manipulate people for their own good. Outside of religious circles, the same problem existed. Um, There's no shortage of people today and certainly in the past promising others that, hey, if you just follow me and do this, I'll lead you to a greener uh, pastor in life. They're kind of like modern-day Ponzi schemes without the money, right? So listen to how Ezekiel 34 describes this false shepherd problem when speaking to God's people. And he says this in 34, 1 through 6. It'll be behind me. Woe to you, speaking to false shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? Key statement, the shepherd disadvantages self for the flock. We're going to come back to that. Don't just take care of yourself, he says. You eat the curds, you clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. They were the diaspora was into, into a, a perishable environment. They literally were losing their lives. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched for them. Not only did the shepherds lose the sheep, drove them away, but then they had no care or desire to even look for them. This is the antithesis of what the good shepherd does. And so unlike Psalm 23, Ezekiel gives us a description of what a false shepherd does. And remember the context Jesus is giving this teaching in. If you backtrack and read chapter 9, and you know the bigger, the bigger story of what's going on in chapter 9, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees right now, who just kicked a guy out of the synagogue because Jesus healed him of blindness on a Sunday. The problem here is that Jesus healed the sick on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees were extremely angry about this. They were not celebrating the fact that the Savior just made a blind guy see, they were saying, hey, bro, you did this on a Sunday, and this is a problem. So they kicked, the guy, they kicked everybody out of the temple, essentially the blind guy especially. They just threw him to the curb. So you've got Jesus giving a teaching on false shepherds in front of a group of false shepherds. And the problem with what happened here is they were more concerned with manipulating laws and rules to keep power than they were seeing Jesus' power free and heal a person. They couldn't see beyond the legislation. They couldn't see that the law was leading to Jesus. They just used the law to penalize Jesus. And in this case, I'm sure a guy that was pretty happy that that can see again. And so it's to this crowd, Jesus, in two ways, he, he both reveals himself as the good shepherd, and then he quickly identifies, he's just swinging this pendulum back and forth, what a false shepherd is and what they do. And in Scripture, false shepherding always boils down to one thing. A false shepherd, whether they acknowledge it or not, and oftentimes they won't, they live for their own glory. If you want to know the root issue and how you identify a true and a false shepherd, it's whose glory they're living for. So here's what this looks like on a practical level. In the church, a false shepherd, or in the religious world, obviously this is a pretty broad principle here, but in the religious world, a false shepherd will use uh, religious claims to prosper themselves at the expense of the sheep. This is probably best seen, thankfully we don't deal with this in our body, but if you've ever studied the prosperity gospel where essentially um, you have people leveraging this, this promise that's really troubling, that if, essentially it goes like this, if you give me all your money, at some point God will give you a lot of money, 
And then if he doesn't give you a lot of money, it's because you just don't believe in him enough. And so what happens here is not only do you have a scriptural problem here, but you have, you have shepherds disadvantaging people for self. That's a problem. That's a, that's a glory issue there, right? You'll be hard-pressed to find a religious scandal that doesn't have this at its root. And that's why the Pharisees, they want to kill Jesus. And eventually, the, the mob gets what they ask for. His claims are incredibly beneficial to the people. He's saying like, hey, that yoke around your neck, I'm here to take it away. This is going to benefit you to follow me. But what starts to happen is those who own the yoke realize that the power and status they have, is they're, they're losing it. In other words, this is a glory issue about power. And so they're more concerned about that than they are freedom. And today, it's unfortunately common to see false shepherds. Uh, this is the zeitgeist of our world. I call it the Jesus confusion culture. False shepherds teach things that are completely incongruent with the scripture. There are a lot of people that get on TV that talk about what Jesus said and what he did and what the church is and isn't doing, and they absolutely have no rudder in scripture. Perhaps even more unfortunate is that there are masses of sheep who then, who then follow that voice. And then simply put, what happens is that person, if they, in the name of Jesus, are calling people to follow them in the name of Jesus, but they're actually not asking them to do the things that Jesus is asking of them. There's not a, a, an authoritative truth an accountability with that, what happens is they, they live for their own glory. They're actually just asking somebody to do what they want them to do, as opposed to Jesus's voice and his glory. It's a glory problem. Outside the church, I mentioned this when we launched in 2010, but I'll just revisit it. Outside the church, false shepherds will use political, social, or economic systems to prosper themselves at the expense of those who choose to follow them. And the most recent example, I think we have the greatest example, is the 2007 economic collapse. Economists said, if you read the math on this, no pun intended, that it, it stemmed largely from predatory lending, where, where not all, but some very trusted lenders took advantage of their clients for personal prosperity by essentially doing what we talked against in Nehemiah. They were giving them loans they couldn't afford. They, they enslaved them to a financial problem. And as a result, the global economy collapsed. So in both categories, the false shepherd is identified as a person uh, who advantages self at the expense of another. That's the root issue of both of these things going on here and the Pharisees themselves. And so I want to, 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 to kind of pipe into this some positivity. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, to a certain extent, it's not just really wise, but it's, it's, I would say, absolutely wise for us to be cautious about people who make life-changing truth claims, no matter where they're coming from. And I think that the goodness of Jesus allows us to do this. Like, Jesus gives us the opportunity to, to figure out who he is. He tells us in John 1, come and see me. So he's saying, like, I recognize these are some big statements. Explore me. Understand me. Our church is set up for this same construct. We want this to be a place where you don't have to believe just to be here. We want this to be a place where you can believe, but also you can sort out your belief, right? What, what happens here is you, you've got this, this, this reality that we call discernment in the Christian faith. And we should recognize that there's something very healthy about this. That skepticism, it actually is a tool, when it's used by God, it's a tool that gives us the ability to identify what is true and right in his eyes. However, we have to take this to its logical end. At some point, you have to also answer the question or start giving some credence to the good shepherd evidence. You can't just only have skepticism, particularly when it comes to Jesus. At some point, you've got to ask yourself, no matter where you are with Jesus, what kind of shepherd do you actually believe that he is? And this is what is most ironic about these interactions we see between Jesus and the religious leaders. In no way is he ever found guilty of the typical shepherding complexes, the, the false shepherding complexes that we're talking about here. Yet for some reason, his adversaries, in this case the Pharisees, they still deny him. Think about this. They answer his que their questions. He's shown them the undeniable power of God in the world. 
He's using this power not for himself. I mean, the ultimate example of power is him dying on the cross to bring glory to God and for our good. These are not like the marks of a, of a selfish megalomaniac. These are the marks of somebody living a life disadvantaging himself for others. He does not fit the false shepherd bill. Yet, many people today and in this text, they still refuse to believe in him. And this raises a serious question. Why does this happen? Why do people often see the evidence of Jesus like it's right there, and yet they still deny him as the good shepherd? And I'm talking to both believer and unbeliever alike, because those of us that follow Jesus when we don't, or claim to follow Jesus, when we don't follow him in certain areas, what we're doing is calling into question his, his objective truth, his goodness to us. If he says, hey, I'm leading you this way, or hey, my scripture says this, follow me in this way, and we say no, it's the same problem as unbelief. It's just happening in the context of somebody who genuinely does believe. So here's why this happens. This is the natural byproduct of a life that denies the reality of a God who is truth and maybe even denies truth in and of itself. You know, when you believe like this, what it means is you've chosen to dub your own truth and authoritative voice as the ultimate God in your life. And this is the root issue driving the Jesus confusion culture today. What's happening is the, the reason why somebody can confidently tell you that what you believe about Jesus is wrong and even though you're like pointing at it in red letters in scripture, is because this is an issue of, of voice. For that person, the louder voice, the voice that matters most, most in their lives, is their own. They're following or wanting to follow, or they have some odd acquaintance with Jesus, but, but they devalue his voice more than they value their own. And when this happens, a person naturally expects God to be the kind of shepherd that they want him to be, not the good shepherd that he actually says he is. Because if you matter more than Jesus' voice, of course, you're going you're gonna to make Jesus look like you. So consequently, you demand God to prove himself to you on your, own, your, your terms, not his. And as a result, what matters most to you, you're going to find somewhat ironically begins to matter most to Jesus. And it is what you will demand from him as proof that he is your good shepherd. You'll say, you've got to do this, man, if you're going to actually be my good shepherd. The validation is on what we expect, not on, not on how Jesus reveals himself. I'll give you a couple examples of this. These are the common ones. If experience is your thing, this is kind of the battle cry of our modern culture. You know, maybe 40 years ago, not that logic and reason don't matter today, but I think it was more valued. Now experience is, is more the driving decision-making factor. If experience is your thing, then you're going to want God to do a sensational things in your life or you, or you won't listen to him. If he doesn't, you know, change the world after six minutes of praying, you'll, you'll begin to question whether or not he's real. Or if you're like me, this is where I'm at, and you, you're an evidence guy, you know, um, it would be great if God would talk to me in like pie charts and stuff because I just really dig that stuff and give me linear maps and plot stuff. I, I'm an evidence guy. The problem with evidence, guys, is that if, you, if you're only evidence, <clears throat> you're going to expect God to reveal himself uh, with just the hard facts. And while God does give us hard facts, he doesn't, he doesn't only give us hard facts. We've said before, faith is uh, it's not a blind leap of ignorance. It's, kind of a, it's a reasonable step of faith. You look at the evidence and you say, you know what, there's some credibility to this thing, and I think I'm going to begin pursuing Jesus. But if you're wanting him to, like, like if I'm wanting him to make an appointment with me at the, the Texas Roadhouse after church so that I can see him face to face, it's just not going to happen. The evidence defeats the purpose there. Or if you're a mystic, you'll expect God to do some hyper-spiritual stuff for you or else you won't listen. If justice is your thing, you'll deny God when you see unjust situations in the world. The Pharisees are the quintessential example of this. They regularly demand Jesus prove himself on their terms. So much so, think about this. He just made a guy that was blind see right in front of their eyes, and it was not enough. Like, it was still en- it was not enough. They couldn't, they couldn't take the leap and say, man, something is very different in a really good way about this guy. Why? Bottom line is this, because they value their own voice more than God's. And in this case, they claim to believe in God. And that's why Jesus is teaching the evidence, the miracles, 
uh, they're just never going to be enough to cause a person like this to follow him because the evidence, the teaching, and the miracles are not the problem. The problem is the heart. So when it comes to the heart and the mind, these things have to work in tandem, it is good to be healthily skeptical when we come across sensational truth claims in culture. And the beauty of the scripture is that we actually have something to go back to to sift and to sort this stuff. When discernment says that doesn't sound right, you can really validate whether it is right by saying, I've got, I've got the word, which is why Jesus, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, Jesus turns to the word in this passage a little bit down the road. He himself is going to the word to be able to teach about the kingdom. It's healthy to, to be skeptical about sensational truth claims or other claims in our culture. However, we have to be very cautious that our skeptical nature doesn't blind us from actually seeing the truth. That's what's happening with the Pharisees, because that can happen, and that creates a whole other problem. Um, We call it being jaded in our world. Anybody ever heard of that term? It means you're just so hard and rocky that you don't even see reality anymore. You can't, for whatever reasons that have led you to that place. And being jaded in our world will keep you from finding truth just as much as being blindly naive will. Both are extremes and both are problematic for pursuing God. Listen to how um, one of my favorite scholars, he's connected to what the free church, our denomination, teaches at Trinity up north seminary. Listen to how D.A. Carson, he's a renowned scholar, describes this reality. He uses it from the context of, of global politics. He says, the world still seeks its humanistic political saviors because a lot of times we, we have these expectations that a person or an administration or something can fulfill us like God can. Um, and here we find out that that can actually be the very opposite thing. He says the world still seeks its humanistic political saviors. And he gives us some extreme examples of this. It's Hitler's, it's Stalin's, it's Mao's, it's Pol Pot's, the kind of brutal tyrant of Cambodia. And he says, it's, and only too late does it learn that they blatantly confiscate personal property. They come to steal, is what Jesus says. In, in an effort of leading the people to utopia, they just ravage them. They ruthlessly trample human life underfoot. They come to kill. I think 1.5 million people died under the Pol Pot administration in essentially labor camps, leader of the people, and contemptuously savage all that is valuable. They come only to destroy. Uh, Jesus is right. It is not the Christian doctrine of heaven that is the myth, but the humanist dream of utopia. I mean, we can see there's a kind of a problem in Kansas, right? So here's what Carson is saying. In this life, you will have an endless supply of shepherds who ask you to follow them. But only one is going to handle you with the selfless care and love uh, that that really you you deserve. And his name is Jesus. And it's why he doesn't just consider himself a shepherd or a leader. He's called the good shepherd. There's a great distinction there. Because everything he does is for the glory of his father and the good of us. I mean, his primary pleasing point is God. And the great benefit of that is that lots of amazing things happen for our lives after. Because Jesus pleases God and deals with the problem of sin, we find redemption, right? He lives this totally selfless and sacrificial life for us. And this is the nature of what a good shepherd is and what a good shepherd does. And it's why he's worth following. And the main place the good shepherd wants to lead you to is not off a cliff. It's to a a life-filled personal relationship with his Father in heaven, our God. Jesus drives us home in John 10, 1 through 3. He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, and very truly is like an old world anachronism for saying, like, this is like gospel. This is rock solid. You need to hear this. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, uh, uh, true shepherd, but climbs in by some other way, false shepherd, is a thief and a robber. The gate is Jesus. He's the ultimate sifting entity. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Here's how we'll wrap up this morning. I just really want to talk a minute about these verses. In these verses, we really see that our good shepherd, 
wants to personally know us and lead us in life. This is the distinction of the, of the shepherd, the Western shepherd, cracking with the whip, and the good shepherd who loves and leads. This is important to see because it truly is one thing to say, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for you and for me. That's one thing, and that's very true. But it is an entirely other thing to believe that so deeply that you experience the reality of what it means to be known by Jesus in a way so intimately that you know he, he knows your name, and he recognizes your name, and he calls you by name. Whatever your name is, he knows it. And he thinks about you, and he loves you, and he cares about you. This shepherding truth is a distinction of the Christian faith, that Jesus offers his sheep, again, a really good term when we think about it like this, an intimate relationship with a, with a truly personal God, that he's the gate to knowing God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all you have to do is look at some of the ways. I'll give you two brief examples of the way he makes good on that promise in Scripture. Perhaps the greatest one is the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. We're in a face-to-face meeting. You know, Jesus looks into this guy, guy's heart, and he shows him that he's following the wrong shepherd. Nicodemus, at this point in his, in his faith journey, is so focused on the law, the Bible actually says that he's a teacher of the law, um, that, that, he, that he misses the point of who the law is leading to. The Old Testament's pointing to Jesus. And this guy is like a professor, for lack of a better term, of the Old Testament. And he can't see how it connects to Jesus. And so Jesus sets up an appointment with them, and he personally calls them out by name. And Nicodemus, we find out, begins to follow Jesus. Think of this, another story, another great and famous story. The great story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, right? She was thirsting for something in life. She was, soul was dried up. And she had hopelessly trusted in the false shepherd of bad relationships. We know, based on the subtext we have of that story, that men were literally taking advantage of her. And she was hoping she'd find life fulfillment in that. Then Jesus, the greatest man, comes to her one-on-one and says, listen, um, she doesn't know who he is, right? But Jesus already knows who she is. He knows her name. He doesn't mention it in that passage, but he knows who she is and the depths of her heart and what she struggles with and the restlessness in her soul. And it's at that moment he personally offers her soul what it truly needs to find peace. Not another broken relationship that advantages a guy over her. He says, listen, I'm going to give you my grace. I want you to follow me and I'll show you what genuine manhood is like. What you've experienced is wrong. Then there's this story, the one we'll end on, the great story of your life. And that one obviously isn't penned in the scripture, but it's still being written in God's book. What is your story? How is God personally speaking to you? Has God been calling you out by name to following, follow him more closely? If, he's, if you're kind of wrestling with who Jesus is or you're in a season of your faith where you're really questioning who Jesus is, ask yourself, are you, are you hearing the voice of your shepherd? Um, are you at this place in life where maybe, you know, you're hearing his voice. He's already called out to you. You're part of the flock. You're not jumping around like a deer. You know who you are. Your identity is fixed in Jesus. Have you learned to truly listen to the voice of your good shepherd? Do you recognize it's not just about identity, but now it's about identity and the lifelong pursuit of Christ? I hope so, because recognizing the voice of your good shepherd and following him, it truly is one of the great evidences that you're truly his, because the sheep love the shepherd and the sheep follow the shepherd. It's an important part of your relationship with God because Jesus tells us his true sheep, right? A true sheep recognizes the voice of the shepherd and they choose volitionally to follow it above all else. Many voices we hear in life, but there is only one that they give the credence to follow, the good shepherd. And that's why understanding Jesus' good shepherd analogy is so important at a time in our culture where there is a Jesus confusion cohort. Everybody loves Jesus, but I don't know that they love the one we're talking about in the Bible. In Jesus' day, it was very common, much like it is in our day, for shepherds um, to, uh, in the modern world, for shepherds to lead their sheep 
by using particular sounds and calls. The, the greatest example we have of this today is probably the way um, a person who really loves a dog works with them. That dog like, can learn to, be, to obey and to follow the voice of their owner more than they can any other person. They, they've learned to like, if I say, it's my dog and I say something to my dog and you're next to me and you say something to my dog, the dog is going to follow me because it, there's a trust relationship now that's developed between, between the, for lack of a better term, the shepherd and the sheep. This is kind of what we're talking about here. As a result, these sheep, because they learn to hear the voice of their shepherd, they become accustomed to obeying the voice of their shepherd above all else, and they follow him. And the benefit of following him, according to what Jesus says here, the one, he's the one who promises to lead us away from thieves and robbers, the one who promises to lead us away from voices in life that seek to hurt us, steal from us, destroy and mislead us. They, they're, they're trying to move us away from the safety of our true shepherd. And so you see... So we move into response, and you think about communion, and you think about what the voice of this table says, that Christ has died for us. That's, the, that's what we hear from heaven this morning. When you truly desire to know and be known by Jesus like a shepherd and a sheep, you're going to begin the journey of hearing and obeying the voice of your good shepherd. And when you do that, Jesus promises, that's the whole point of these passages, is that you're going to find abundant life. You're going to find hope and peace and joy and true prosperity in Jesus Christ not an abusive one. You're going to find something that is, it's incomparable, really beyond the things that we can comprehend, if you think about it. Most of us could probably say this. If we've been in Jesus sometime, we know that it's not always been an easy journey, but, but it's been a good one, and God works in ways in our lives oftentimes we never even imagined he would. That's the abundant life. And you only find that kind of life if you listen to and respond to the voice of the good shepherd, and you do that by believing Jesus is who he says he is today. We let his voice define who he is, not anybody else's. So by doing that, I want to challenge you guys to ask these two questions as we move into response and communion. When it comes to Jesus being your good shepherd, I want you to ask yourself as you, as you think through the communion table and response time, what is Jesus saying to you about the role of him being his, uh, your good shepherd in your life? And what is it that you intend to do that? How do you intend to follow his voice? If you have questions about that, we're here to help you sort that out. And I pray you would really wrestle with that now in the grace of Jesus and with the goodness of the presence of his son who is with us right now. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for um, the good shepherd. Thank you, Father, that again we see this immeasurable relationship with you. We see that, God, you're not just uh, high and mighty in heaven disconnected from us, but you're actually a God who loves and cares for us uh, deeply. You're a God that actually cares for us in such a way that you offer yourself to us, not just to lead into love, but you put yourself in between us and danger. That's certainly we, we saw exemplified on the cross and we see it every day as you, as you guide our steps. So I pray now as we think through who you are and what you've done for us, and what you've done for your Father in heaven, that we would truly let this be a time of self-reflection. May we now take what we have heard this morning and respond to you in the ways that you lead us. May we be fixed on your son like a laser this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.